To support the podcast, please follow the link in the show notes and follow our Instagram at Los Angeles Mysteries. Greetings, Earthlings. Out in the Mojave Desert, I stumbled upon a strange device, half buried in the sand. It's a smooth metallic bean about the size of a football, with nothing on it but two small dials used to tune to different stations. It's kind of like an old ham radio. But the weirdest part is, it can pick up stories from the past. We're using it to investigate LA's outer space craze in the mid-20th century. Did people really believe as a result of the War of the Worlds radio broadcast that Martians were invading their communities with poisonous gas and high-powered laser weapons? Did neighbors actually panic in the streets, arming themselves for a Martian war? And if not, where does the persisting legend come from? Stay tuned for Terror in the Air. Turn you until then to the music of Ramon Raquello and his orchestra. 1938, October 30th, Mischief Night. We take you now to Grover's Mill, New Jersey. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Carl Phillips again, out at the Wilmoth Farm, Grover's Mill, New Jersey. I guess that's it, yes, I guess that's the thing directly in front of me, half buried in a vast pit. But I can see if the object itself doesn't look very much like a meteor, at least not the meteors I've seen, it looks more like a huge cylinder, has a diameter of, um, um, what would you say, Professor Pearson? What's that? Uh, what would you say, uh, what's the diameter of this? About 30 yards. About 30 yards. The metal on the sheath is, well, I've never seen anything like it. Now, ladies and gentlemen, there's something I haven't mentioned in all this excitement, but it's becoming more distinct. Perhaps you've caught it already on your radio. Listen, please. Do you hear it? It's a curious humming sound that seems to come from inside the object. I'll uh, move the microphone nearer. Here. Now, we're not more than 25 feet away. Uh, can you hear it now? Uh, Professor Pearson, I say, do you still think it's a meteor, Professor? I don't know what to think. The uh, metal casing is definitely extraterrestrial. Uh, not found on this Earth. Friction with the Earth's atmosphere usually tears holes in a meteorite. This thing is smooth and you can see it's cylindrical uh, shape. Something's happening. Ladies and gentlemen, this is terrific. This end of the thing is beginning to flake off. The top is beginning to rotate like a screw, and the thing must be hollow. He's moving! Look, keep back there! Keep back there! Keep those turned back! Keep back there! Keep those idiots back! Keep off! The top's loose! Look out, Bill! Stand back! Ladies and gentlemen, this is the most terrifying thing I've ever witnessed. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Something's happening. Humped shape is rising out of the pit. I can make out a small beam of light against a mirror. What's that? There's a jet of flame springing from that mirror and it leaps right at the advancing men. It strikes them head on. Lord, they're turning into flames. Ah! 
whole field colored by the woods, the bars, the, the gas tank, tanks of the automobiles spreading everywhere. It's coming this way now, about 20 yards to my right. Ladies and gentlemen, due to circumstances beyond our control, we are unable to continue the broadcast from Grover's Mill. We continue now with our piano interlude. As these apparent news bulletins reach homes across America, much of the country flings into chaos. Newark police order ambulances and squad cars to the scene of the gas attack, as families hurry to pack only their most prized possessions, fleeing to the streets, no plan to avoid the incoming invasion. On the West Coast, a Los Angeles man and his wife hold hands as they listen on a car radio. They've run out of gas in Northern California's Redwood Forest. The press switchboards in LA are flooded. Listeners even head into their local newsrooms to get updates in person. 64-year-old Seymour Hayden is glued to his radio in the San Fernando Valley when his wife rushes in. What is it? What is it? What could it be? Is it the Germans? Martians. Likewise, in Venice, E.M. Moody listens in with his wife. All of a sudden, a startling announcement. Professor so-and-so from Princeton University had just observed several explosions on the planet Mars, shooting out great jets of blue flame, traveling at rapid speed toward Earth. Then, suddenly, another announcement, a, a news bulletin. A farmer in Grover's Mill, New Jersey, had reported a meteor had fallen on his farm. He, he describes a hissing sound and a streak of greenish light that hit the earth with such force it knocked him from his chair. Three persons faint in Toledo. In Chicago, restaurant patrons flee mid-meal. Overtaking the pulpit at an Indianapolis church, a woman declares the world is coming to an end. The couple, stranded up in the Redwood Forest, just wishes they could make it back to L.A. to see their kids one last time. Of course, this wasn't an invasion from Mars, but a message from Mercury. You are listening to a CBS presentation of Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the Air in an original dramatization of The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. This is Orson Welles, ladies and gentlemen. Out of character to assure you that the War of the Worlds has no further significance than as the holiday offering it was intended to be. The Mercury Theater's own radio version of dressing up in a sheet and jumping out of a bush and saying boo. By the next morning, front pages nationwide are covered with the broadcast and ensuing panic. Purely a figment of imagination, and so announced at particular intervals. Fantastic description of disaster nevertheless caused weeping hysterical men and women to swear they actually saw warriors from Mars racing about the countryside. Mysterious rays and clouds of gas drifting toward New York. Several persons came forward to swear they saw the rocket land and strange creatures climb out from it. That Men from Mars radio drama might very well be set down as the greatest demonstration in modern times of the amazing power of the human mind. The common belief is that the mock news bulletins were the source of the mania. Officials assume many people tuned into the War of the Worlds sometime in the middle, unaware of its context. And indeed, the broadcasters received tons of letters and calls. Now, 
I appreciate what CBS and radio have done for the world, but why not respect that appreciation and not destroy our faith and confidence we have in the greatest means of getting information about the world? Radio. E.M. Moody. Venice, California. West Coast Vice President of the Broadcasting System, D.W. Thornburg, blew off the whole thing, reminding the press it had been announced four times that the presentation was a drama. We get calls every time one of our fictional characters is supposed to have a cold. Sometimes our listeners even send cough medicine. But the damage had already been done, and many were already leveraging the situation for their own gain. Actress sues over horror broadcast, charging shock. Sarah E. Collins, actress who asks for $50,000 damages, filed suit for that amount in Superior Court yesterday against Columbia Broadcasting System of California and a couple of John Doe's whose true names she asks permission to fill in later. Film studios take a cue from the excitement and papers predict a fantasy cycle looms on Hollywood horizon with ongoing productions of Lost Atlantis, Wizard of Oz, and talks of Paramount financing a journey to Mars in direct response to the Mercury Theater hype. Establishments begin cashing in, from the clubs in LA's red light district. Hot Mamas from Mars, all new fiery takeoff review, 6th and Main, Burbank Burlesque Theater. To the halls of Congress. John G. Clark, chairman of the Democratic State Central Committee, pointed out the similarity between the radio panic and Republican charges of communism against Democratic candidates. GOPsters still are hopeful of rousting the California electorate into being as gullible as the panicky radio audience. So, what caused so many in 1938 to accept a Martian invasion? New evidence suggests most people didn't. By 1940, a study from Princeton University citing Gallup polls 12 million listeners with the Hooper ratings 4 million listeners, determines an average of 6 million Americans tuned in, with just over 1 million succumbing to mass panic. But Orson Welles' historian, Paul Hare, believes the much lower Hooper number collected at the exact time of the broadcast to be far more reliable. Welles' show wasn't known to be a very popular program. In fact, the Mercury Theater Hour came into existence as the result of CBS's inability to sell advertising during that slot, due to the extreme popularity of NBC's The Chase and Sanborn Hour, airing at the exact same time. So any substantial listenership of the Martian invasion and resulting panic is doubtful. The hysteria hype is encouraged further by a second culprit, the newspapers. Printing salacious headlines, extreme and often unverified reports, and even staging photographs, perhaps in an effort to sow distrust in their first major competitor, home radio. It would be wrong to say, however, that no anxieties were whipped up that night in October. Communications with CBS, the press, and police had an uptick during the broadcast. At least enough to have producers at the station insist Wells go on air, out of character, to address the audience. We'll be relieved, I hope, to learn that we didn't mean it. Historian A. Brad Schwartz, one of the first to have access to Lansing University's collection of Orson Welles' personal documents, indicates, though the lawsuits and angry letters were greatly exaggerated, 
they do exist. Los Angeles resident Joanna Wilizensky wrote in a letter to President Roosevelt that she had called to friends and neighbors at the radio announcer's request so they too could listen in for further reports and that she had been devastated by the look brought to a 14-year-old girl's eyes after hearing of the Martians. Mrs. Wilizinski would go on to say she wished she could get her hands on those responsible for the terror. She was kind of responsible. Additionally, though few listeners bought the Martian invasion, part of the hysteria had come from more earthly concerns. Some of the audience, noting a gas attack and hearing an actor on Orson's devilish direction, impersonating FDR and talking of faith in our military and the enemy invasion, believed the impending Nazi threat in Europe had reached American shores. Though the exact character of the fever felt that night will always be cloaked in mystery, Schwartz concludes, it cannot accurately be called a mass panic. As defined by sociologists, a panic requires mobilization, in which people flee en masse or take other action against a real or imagined threat. That level of hysteria would invade Los Angeles just four years later. Next time on Alien L.A. In February of 1942, an unidentified object above Los Angeles was pummeled with over a thousand anti-aircraft rounds. And to this day, no one knows what it was. Please visit our Instagram, at Los Angeles Mysteries. A special thanks to Michelle Miller and A. Brad Schwartz's book, Broadcast Hysteria. As always, I'm John E. Marino. <laughs>